The new Amsterdam Theater, located at 214 West 42nd Street, just off Times Square in New York, was built in 1902 and is one of the oldest surviving Broadway structures in the theater district of Manhattan. The theater opened in October of 1903 with Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, but it was mostly remembered for the Ziegfeld Follies and their brilliant, spectacular productions with bright, colorful, tiny costumes and dramatic stage numbers. The Follies ran from 1913 to 1927, showcasing such talents as Fanny Bryce, Will Rogers, Eddie Cantor, W.C. Fields, and the silent film star got her start on this very stage, Olive Thomas. Today, the Disney Corporation owns the building, and they spent millions on its renovation, and it was used to premiere their new staged productions The Lion King, Mary Poppins, and Aladdin. But after the crowds leave for the night, and the lights are reset, one spirit stays behind. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret. And I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. She was a 17-year-old girl, already married and divorced from Pennsylvania, that would go on to take the Ziegfeld Follies to new heights and take Hollywood by storm. Olive Thomas came to New York to help earn money for her family some years after her father died, leaving her mother to care for her and her two younger brothers. After she married Bernard Thomas in 1911, she took a trip to New York to visit her aunt and was so enamored with the city that she decided not to go back. She briefly took a job as a clerk in Harlem before she entered the contest that would set in motion a chain of events that would change her life and, in turn, cause her youthful death. Winning that contest that crowned her the most beautiful girl in New York in 1911 made her one of the most sought-after models and actresses in the city. She decided that she wanted to be a Ziegfeld girl and went to the New Amsterdam to ask for a position and was, of course, granted one immediately. She was the hottest commodity in New York, after all. She's still the most remembered and popular of all the Ziegfeld girls and has her own fan club to this day. So much so that the security teams at the New Amsterdam Theater have to do a sweep of the facilities to make sure random fans aren't hiding out in corners in hopes to meet their favorite silent movie star face to face. Olive Thomas was lured away to Hollywood to star in motion pictures. She was on a wild ride, making lots of money, much of which she sent home to her mother, but she was playing pretty loose with the rules. They say she had a face of an angel and the mouth of a sailor. It wasn't long before she found someone who could not only keep up, but give her a run for her money. Jack Pickford, the rascal of a brother to Hollywood sweetheart, Mary Pickford. He was busy making movies and a reputation of his own. They were similar in their personalities, and their relationship reflected as much. They would go through extremes of deep and passionate love, two volatile and hateful arguments only to make up one more time. Jack Pickford has said that Olive was the love of his life. 
1920, the couple snuck off to France for a second honeymoon and set in to celebrate with vigor. They partied and danced, had other lovers, and drank. Popular screenwriter Frances Marion has said of the couple in her autobiography, Off With Their Heads, quote, Two innocent-looking children, they were the gayest, wildest brats who ever stirred the stardust on Broadway. Both were talented, but they were much more interested in playing the roulette of life than concentrating on their careers, end quote. On the night of September 5th, after a night of drinking and dining, they returned to their room at the Hotel Ritz around 3 a.m. Jack was heading straight for bed, but Olive wanted to take something to help ease her throbbing headache. She drunkenly stumbled into the bathroom to find the aspirin and take a handful. She washed down the bitter pills with alcohol from a flask that was nearby. Had she had her wits about her and been able to read the label written in French, she would have seen the contents she ingested were labeled poison. But within moments, she felt a burning sensation on her tongue and cheeks as it moved down her throat. She screamed knowing that something was very wrong. She had accidentally taken mercury bichloride. It's a very strong type of mercury salt that was a medication her husband Jack was taking to use topically to treat his erupted ulcers caused from syphilis. Jack heard his wife scream from the other room and he rushed to catch her just as she lost consciousness, pill bottle in hand. At this point, the mercury bichloride would be working quickly at shutting down her organs. He called for a doctor and tried to flush her system with water and then tried getting her to swallow raw eggs to induce vomiting. She was taken to the hospital and had her stomach pumped three times, but the poison had already started absorbing into her tissues and organs. Its final act is corrosion of the kidneys, resulting in kidney failure and, in turn, death. On September 10th, Jack Pickford asked how she was feeling and she responded, Pretty weak but I'll be all right in a little while. Don't worry, darling. Those were her last words. She died a few hours later. Olive Thomas is the most active spirit on Broadway. Her antics at the New Amsterdam Theater have ranged from knocking and moving items to opening doors and offering a cold presence. But ever the performer, for over a century she has been seen walking across the stage only to disappear into a solid wall. She's been heard singing and tap dancing in the former garden rehearsal area, which is now used for storage. Sometimes she is seen as a globe of light, a cloudy mist, almost a wispy manifestation to a full-color, dressed-in costume, carrying a blue bottle, in-your-face apparition. Dana Amandala, the vice president of operations at Disney Theatrical Group, keeps a journal of her sightings and is amazed at the frequency and the similarities of so many stories. After losing a number of employees to Olive's shenanigans, Amandala hung a portrait of Olive at every entrance to the theater, and the staff offer her greetings when they come in and bid her farewell when they exit the theater in the evening. Amandala believes that this practice helps to keep her mischievous activities to a minimum. One of the stories he tells is about a group of Disney staffers that were sitting and discussing the 2011 Oscar-winning film The Artist, a black-and-white movie that is set in the silent film era. They were wondering out loud how many Follies girls went on to become film stars and mentioned that Olive Thomas was one, but somebody said the real star of the silent era was Mary Pickford, 
which, as you know, is Olive Thomas's sister-in-law. He says, quote, Now, maybe Olive got a little upset about that because when someone said, I wonder what Olive Thomas would think of the artist, a stack of 13 or 14 DVDs on the table next to them flew into the air and crashed across the room. They all sat in stunned silence. That stack had been there for a long time, and there was no obvious way they could have fallen, let alone flew across the room. They didn't fall straight down as CDs would have done. They went flying about three feet across the room and hit a wall. This was witnessed by several people. They didn't even make the connection to Olive right away, but when they told me about it, I did. End quote. Others have told stories of her touching their backs, and when they turn around, there's no one there but some have heard faint giggling nearby. She's been known to respond to questions and praise by blinking lights or moving objects, but will not perform on command. Amandala said, quote, When people try to find her, they can't. She tends to appear just at the moment we forget about her, when we're busy putting in a new show or putting in a new office, when there are changes happening, end quote. It's been over a century since her death, and Olive has stayed true to where her heart and tap-dancing feet belonged, on the streets of Broadway. The Chicago Fire of 1871 burned its way through four miles in length and almost a mile wide, killing an estimated 300 people in its wake and leaving some 100,000 others homeless. The buildings were mostly wooden, as were the sidewalks, and add in the blustery dry winds of October, it's not difficult to see how so much damage happened in two days' time. During the reconstruction of the new city, newly elected mayor Joseph Medill was most likely elected because of his stance that he was determined to enforce stricter building and fire codes and, at the time, the local theater, the Iroquois, was determined to follow the new requirements. But sometimes... Even the best laid plans can get corrupted and actually get paid off to be swept under the rug and not noticed even if the best of intentions were in place before things ran behind schedule and it just became easier to pay someone to look the other way. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. 
Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. In December of 1903, the beautiful, shiny and new, five-week-old theater, the Iroquois, was presenting the musical comedy Mr. Bluebeard starring Eddie Foy. It was a huge, elaborate production and there were over 1,700 in attendance. During the second act, a spark from a freestanding spotlight ignited a drapery and set piece causing flames to crawl up and along these supposedly fire-retardant curtains creating a fiery ceiling and then spread to engulf the set created with extremely flammable paint. The fire was attempted to be put out with less than helpful fire extinguishers and did little to discourage the spread of the flammable set pieces. Within moments, the fire was completely out of control. The exits were all obscured by black curtains and further, the doors were blocked by metal accordion gates. Even worse, to keep the balcony ticket holders from sneaking down to fill the more expensive floor seats, the metal gates to the balcony also had locks, trapping hundreds of people in the upper decks. And of course, with a panic, the ushers, with the keys, had attempted to save their own lives. Mass panic ensued as the over 1,700 guests and performers fought their way to a single exit to reach the lobby and then the doors. The audience was mostly women and children, and many were trampled to death in the mass exodus. Not long into the disaster, the entire lighting system, which ran both the stage and the auditorium lights, sparked out and thrusting the patrons into darkness, leaving no visual assistance other than the orange glow that was destroying everything in its path. Some of the cast members attempted to escape through the stage doors, but once the door was pried open, the backdraft created an explosion through the theater, instantly killing those still trapped in the balcony. Within a matter of moments, hundreds of bodies began piling up, preventing others' escape. Over 600 lost their lives that cold December afternoon. In the aftermath, the bodies of the dead were placed in the alley behind the theater, and the diner next door was turned into an emergency hospital. The Iroquois was demolished, and it wasn't until 1920 that the Ford Oriental Theater was built in its place, with Art Deco decor and all the latest safety precautions. As is known in all ghost hunting circles that where there is a mass death, pain, or suffering, there is usually some residual ghost that just haven't moved on. The Ford Oriental doesn't disappoint. Many have reported cold spots and being touched by hands that burn their skin but no one is there. Some have even seen the red marks left behind that disappears in front of their eyes. Most stories, however, come from what is now called Death Alley, which is that space behind the theater where people have said they heard children crying, footsteps, and even saw full-bodied apparitions. Rumors and lore have it that the older a theater is, the more likely it is to have ghosts. I'm not sure why this is, but having been a theater person most of my life, I can't really argue with the stats. I have been in some pretty creepy theaters in my time. Some would let you know their presence right away, and you could constantly feel someone watching you the whole time. 
Others, even while a production is happening, are willing to let their presence be known. The Fox Theater in St. Louis, Missouri. That section of hallway just before you get to the steps. The hair on my arm stands up every single time. There are over a dozen theaters on Broadway that talk openly about their hauntings like a badge of honor. And as long as the ghost isn't harming anyone or destroying light cues, the specters are most welcome. The ghosts at the O'Neill Theater on Broadway are said to have a few sassy ghosts that will tug on the actor's hair, whisper in their ear, and when they are not getting enough tension, will toss things off the catwalk. The players and staff at the Pittsburgh Playhouse claim they have a lady in white. The story goes all the way back to the early days of the 1920s and talks about a woman who came to the theater in search of her husband and found him in the arms of another woman. She shot them both and then turned the gun on herself. Of the three deaths, it is her spirit that is seen. She paces the balcony and walks near the dressing rooms calling for her dead husband. The Grand Theater in Salt Lake City has a man who will sit and watch the goings-on from the front row of the balcony, just minding his own business. The resident ghost at the Singer Theater in New Orleans likes to learn everyone's name and either whisper it into their ear or call it out from backstage. No one is ever there. The female ghost that hangs out along the fringes of a stage in Colorado likes to come alongside actors just before they're getting ready to go on stage. The actors say that you can feel her and sometimes catch a glimpse of her wispy, ruffled collar before you turn your head and realize that you're alone. But many others claim that they feel cold spots and the smell of clean laundry. And the Virginia Repertory Theater is having canine caspers. Every once in a while, the cast and crew have seen a full-grown collie roaming the halls or taking the stairs. The story is that the founders of the theater in the 1950s used to live upstairs over the theater, and they had two large collies that roamed freely. And finally, you will find few to dispute that Charleston, South Carolina is one of the most haunted cities in America, so it makes sense that we'd find one of the popular theater haunts would be the Dock Street Theater. At 135 Church Street, the prominent and one of the oldest theaters in America not only still stands, but still houses live theater events. The original 1809 structure was built to be a hotel, the Planters Hotel. It was a friendly hotel to those looking for, um, company. This is where we meet Nettie Dickerson. Nettie was from a poor family who longed for more than country life. She had made her way into the big city of Charleston to find a wealthy husband, but soon found out that she was past the marrying age and, at 25, was now considered an old maid. She tried to earn a living the right way, but she was not getting the results she was after. Tired of life passing her by, the story goes that she quit her job as a clerk for the church and spent her last bit of money on the most expensive, fanciest red dress. She made her way to the Planters Inn, and never left. She, quote-unquote, worked there, not so much being employed by the hotel, if you catch my drift, and her story goes that one evening during a fierce storm, she stood out on her balcony and was struck by lightning. Now she is seen roaming the upper floors in her beautiful red dress. A few interesting things I discovered about her apparition. She rarely shows her face, 
but those who do see it say that it is haunting. She looked more like a zombie with hollowed eyes and torn flesh. And the other notable thing about Nettie is that when she appears, it looks like she's missing her legs from the cabs down. But when the Dock Street Theater was built inside the Planters Hotel, the floors were raised about two feet. The ghosty experts say that her body uses memory as to where the floor was, and so her spirit doesn't recognize the new flooring. The other ghost that is most commonly seen at the Dock Street Theater is that of a 19th century flamboyantly dressed actor. He can be seen crossing the stage, causing a racket in various locations, pulling on clothing, and is all around quite the trickster. Although no one is certain, and I'll explain more in a moment, but the ghost is claimed to be the legendary actor Junius Brutus Booth. Junius Booth was an actor that rose to fame in England, but when the competition became too fierce, and he wanted to ditch his wife and son, he made his way to America in 1821. It wasn't long before his acting chops sent him to stardom here. Now, when he frequented the stages of the South and spent quite a bit of time in Charleston and at the Dock Street Theater, no one can explain why Junius Booth's ghost would remain there. During that time in his life, though, for reference, he had become a raging alcoholic and was known to throw temper tantrums, hide out in the theater refusing to perform, and become way too aggressive during the onstage fights or duels. One fellow actor actually left the stage and refused to return because Booth was dangerously aggressive with his saber. He was best known for playing the lead in Shakespeare's Richard III and was hired again and again to reprise the role in tours in thousands of venues. But his drinking finally became so bad that his 14-year-old son had to be sent along when he was on tour to be his dresser and try to keep his father sober long enough to play his part. They had tried to lock him in his hotel room until after the show, but the actor somehow always found a way to get his hands on some liquor. One interesting story was that he bribed a bellhop to buy him some whiskey. When the boy returned, they couldn't get his door unlocked, so he stuck a straw through the keyhole and drank his whiskey that way. Piece of trivia? One afternoon in 1851, Junius Booth had passed out and son Edwin had to step in and play the part. He was only 14, but got a standing ovation playing the lead role of Richard III. And incidentally, he went on to become the most recognized actor to play Shakespeare's Hamlet. He set the record of playing the part of Hamlet consecutively for over 100 nights in a row, a record that held until 1922 when it was broken by John Barrymore. So we know that Junius Booth toured the, the various theaters throughout his career, and that he did spend a good amount of time in the southern states but he didn't die there. He chose to make his home in Baltimore. He bought 150 acres and had a nice log cabin built, but he intended to make it even larger as a retirement project. But he didn't die there. Junius Brutus Booth. I just like saying his full name. He actually died on a steamboat just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. They believe he drank rancid water, developed a fever, and died. My guess is that his liquor-soaked organs probably didn't know what to do with water, so they freaked out. 
Maybe his ghost is drunk and doesn't exactly know where it is. Or maybe his spirit knew that he would always long for the stage and just haunting his home wouldn't get as much attention. Whatever the reason, if it is Junius Booth, it seems like he's there to stay. Reports are still made of his spirit causing havoc at the theaters. That about sums up this episode of Haunted Theaters. I could go on and on, but before you go, there's one more interesting little story I'd like to share. Hello listeners, I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are two hosts on Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals, or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. In 1821, Booth emigrated to the United States, abandoning his wife and son, but bringing along his spare wife. With this second wife, she gave Booth ten children, including three sons, who were also actors, Junius Brutus Booth Jr., Edwin Booth, and John Wilkes Booth. The three brothers, Edwin, John, and Junius Jr., all appeared on the stage together only once in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in 1864. John played Mark Antony, Edwin played Brutus, and Junius played Cassius. The production was a benefit organized to raise funds for a statue of William Shakespeare, which still stands in Central Park, just south of the promenade. And one final piece of trivia. In 1835, Junius Booth wrote a letter to President Andrew Jackson demanding that he pardon two pirates. In the letter, he threatened to kill the president. This was said to be Booth's idea of a joke. And when there was a real attempt on the president's life, the joke wasn't very funny. The would-be assassin failed to shoot Jackson in the back with two separate pistols, and Booth was not under suspicion as being part of any kind of conspiracy. In fact, Booth apologized to Jackson for the confusion, and since he and Jackson were friends, the incident was all but forgotten. But here's one of those twists that really make history interesting, is that a mere 30 years later, Junius's son, John Wilkes, assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. His threat was very real and followed through. His was the first successful assassination of an American president. Thank you once again for joining me this week. And in response to your requests, Bag of Bones can now be found on its own page in Facebook and Instagram. So come on over and visit my Bag of Bones podcast page on Facebook and share your haunted experience. And as this podcast is being released, it is the last day of 2020. I can only imagine that a history-loving podcaster a hundred years into the future is going to have a field day with this year. Happy New Year, everyone. We made it.
Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.